This is Lee, and you're listening to the FemSouth Podcast. And we're embarking on a six-part series examining the impact of the Dobbs decision in states like Alabama, where I live, that have a near-total ban on abortion. We're looking at this issue through an intersectional lens, knowing that access to abortion isn't a single-issue item. It impacts pregnant people's access to health care, pre- and postnatal care, infant mortality, women's economic and social status. It is intimately connected to sex education and consent, birth control, domestic abuse and violence, mental health, bodily autonomy, and on and on and on. Our aim is to keep this conversation in the public without fear or shame. So we're back with part two in our trinity of episodes where we're talking with faith leaders who are speaking up for reproductive rights. If you missed part one with Reverend Katie Zay from the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, we discussed abortion stigma, the anti-abortion movement's political origins, the false choice between being religious or pro-choice, the truth behind crisis pregnancy centers, and the role of clergy in supporting pregnant people. Today, with Reverend Letitia James from the Spiritual Alliance of Communities for Reproductive Dignity, we're going to continue the exploration of lessons learned and not learned in seminary. We dive deeper into patriarchy and the church and discuss white Christian nationalism. We'll talk about purity culture and the false schism between sexuality and spirituality and Reverend Letitia's work helping folks heal from shame-based religious trauma. We hope you'll find this conversation as enlightening as we did. Hello, Fems. This is Lee, and we just listened to Lindsay introduce the podcast, and now I'm sitting here with Lindsay and Reverend Letitia James, and uh, I'm going to take a moment and introduce our guest. So Letitia is an ordained minister in the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries and the co-director of Spiritual Alliance of Communities for Reproductive Dignity, also known as SACRED. Here they advance reproductive justice for marginalized communities through congregations and spiritual communities grounded in a progressive moral framework. Also known as Reverend Pleasure, Letitia is a black, queer, femme, womanist, writer, and facilitator of healing spaces for BIPOC women, femmes, and LGBTQIA folks. Letitia is also the founder of Pleasure Principles Consulting, a healing-centered coaching practice for people harmed by religious rhetoric and patriarchal violence. So, Letitia, I am so excited to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for joining our podcast. Thank you so much, Lee. I appreciate it. I'm so happy to be here with y'all. So to get us started, can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to this work and what is the spiritual component for you? Yeah. So I love this question. I feel like I get it a lot. And uh, every time I feel like I, it reifies for me why I, why I do this work. So not unlike a lot of Black women and women of color and gender expansive folks who do reproductive justice advocacy work, I feel like I was born into it by virtue of my identities and who I am and how I show up in the world. And so I'll back up a little bit. I am the daughter of a mother who died of AIDS-related illness in the early 90s. 
at a time where stigma was at an all-time high, where very little was known about HIV and AIDS. And the spiritual component of my work and how I do my work also started very early because it was actually hidden from me that my mom was HIV positive for almost seven years after her death. And it took my very childlike curiosity and urging and stubbornness <laughs> for the truth to be revealed to me. And that immediately cemented, right, this thought of shame, shame around sexual experiences, shame around sexuality, and this idea of a combining of things like HIV and other sexually transmitted infections and diseases or other things that may come with sexual experiences being equated to sinful behavior, being equated to what is not of God and all of these other things. In the way that I was raised, I was raised Pentecostal Christian, which is a more evangelical and fundamentalist Christian tradition. And so I was taught in various ways, directly and indirectly, and indoctrinated with this idea that there was a particular way to be sexually. There was a particular way to carry your body, and that anything outside of that very rigid box was seen as immoral and was seen as whatever consequences you received, quote unquote, because of it, you brought on yourself, right? It was, it was a direct punishment for your sinful behavior, and so that was something that, of course, I did not jive with or really understand fully at that age and knowing the love I had for my mother and not really understanding this, the rhetoric and conversation around the illness that she had contracted. And, you know, for me as a daughter, I didn't really care how my mom got HIV and, and I, I couldn't give a shit really and truly. And I had no shame in it everyone else's shame was being put on me in various ways. And so, you know, as I got older and started to kind of make sense of it all for myself, I really just got a curiosity for the field. I was always asking questions about sex and sexuality. I was the kid in Sunday school that was like, well, if Adam and Eve only had two sons, who did they marry? Like, I was that kid. So, you know, always getting called in, or asking things that were too provocative or what it looked like. And then, of course, as I got older in my teenage years, I realized that I was queer. Um, and again, in that same evangelical environment, and I have been told that, you know, homosexuality was a sin and, and so homosexuals were going to hell and all of that. So I'm doing all of this grappling within myself. And then fast forward to college where I initially went to become a doctor because according to my grandmother, when I was little, I used to say that I wanted to help little girls like me and mommies like mine after learning all the things. So in my, in my brain, you know, child brain, I was like, okay, I have to be a doctor, right? To do that, to help people in that way, a healer in that way. But then learned about other things like human services and social work and reproductive justice. And after college, I um, one of my first jobs out of college was working at an HIV AIDS organization that catered to women and girls of color, where I was the youth program manager. And there were these young women of color who were sharing their stories with me in confidence, um, whether it was about them being survivors of sexual violence or whether it was about them being queer and questioning and trying to figure out themselves and their identity and how to move forward. And with 
each and every story was also this grounding in shame because of what they had been taught in their religious environments and mostly for them in their Black church environments. And they were internalizing messages about being unworthy, about being less than, about being sinful. Uh, They were internalizing similar messages that I had internalized growing up. Um, And that is where I received my call to ministry, so to speak. I was on my way to get my master's of public health. And then I had this encounter with these young women. And I was like, actually, no. And I pivoted and I applied to seminary to get my master's of divinity. And I knew going to seminary that the reason I was there was because I needed to be a voice on the other side of all of this harmful rhetoric. Women of color, young girls of color, especially young Black girls and Black women were receiving our whole lives around our bodies, shame around our sexuality, shame around our decision-making with our bodies, and to say there has to be a different way, right? This This cannot be the only theology. This cannot be the only way that this is being interpreted. And of course, got to seminary and found out, in fact, that, you know, that was the case and learned about things like womanist theology and got to deepen my praxis around reproductive justice from a spiritual lens. Wow, what a tremendous journey. I mean, that's just, that's so inspiring to me, everything that you've gone through to get to where you are right now. And thank you so much for sharing all that with us. So with that being said, Much of the anti-abortion movement is coming from a specific demographic bent on maintaining the status quo. And most of the world's religions today are patriarchal. So I think one of our first biggest questions is, is how can religious institutions that are inherently patriarchal, you know, i.e. God is male, father, Lord, advocate for women's rights? Yeah, great question. I would honestly say the very first step is to disavow themselves of the lie that religion is inherently patriarchal um, because it's not. So I'll speak from a Christian lens because that is what I, you know, what I grew up in and what I've studied the most. The Holy Spirit, God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, the Son, Savior. There is this false notion that all three of those entities, beings, persons, however you want to call them, are male in some way, have male characteristics in some way. But actually, if you know the context and the interpretation of the Bible, the Holy Spirit is female. Holy Spirit has always been female. In Hebrew, ruach, um, which is breath, right, is a, is a female, it's a feminine word. And so <laughs> this idea that the religion itself is rooted in maleness it's a false premise. Like the the entire basis is false. First of all, for me, on a personal note, (laughs) the idea that you have a creator God, if you believed in in a monotheistic God, that you have a creator God who would create male and female, who would create a diversity of genders, who would create all of these people, quote unquote, in their image, If that were the case and God is inherently male, then would there not only just be male beings on earth? And so the idea then, right, that we're saying, well, human beings were created in God's image. Well, then that means that if we are all of these things, then God also must be all of these things. And so for me, the very first step 
is to stop perpetuating the lie that God is male um, because that's exactly what it is. It's a lie. And then just to look at our biblical texts in Christianity, many, many, many biblical scholars, Jewish, Christian, Islamic, other faith traditions, right, that have studied sacred texts will tell you that there is no sacred text that comes from one source. The Christian Bible is no different. It is a multi-sourced text. Even within Genesis, there is proof amongst biblical scholars that the book of Genesis has three different creation stories put together. We read them as one creation story because of the flow, but they are actually three different creation stories in one. And so if you don't know that, if you don't have the background, if you don't have anyone giving you that context, then of course you're going to be like, oh, well, this is all happening, you know, chronologically. It's not. They are, they are different creation stories. They were written by different authors. It was put together at different times. And so that, those are the types of things I wish we did in our faith spaces. I had to go to seminary to learn all of that. I don't think people should have to go to seminary to learn things like that, especially when you talk about being committed to a faith, being devoted to a faith. I actually feel like, I'll I'll put it this way, the more westernized religions are the only religions where you have to go to a place of education, an institution, to learn the truth and the context about your the religion that you are devoting yourself to. I'm also a practitioner of an African traditional religion, and that is an oral religion. It is not written down. And so I don't have to go into a quote unquote church or a, or a physical place of worship to learn about it. I learn about that in community with people through the stories. And that is how I feel church should be. Church is supposed to be communal. That is actually how the early church was where you sat in community and much of it was oral before any of the Bible got written down, which is partially why the Bible has so many interpretations and why it is difficult to know where everything came from because it it was an oral tradition for a very long time. Well, actually, yes, I'm glad that you brought that up because I do think it's important to talk about seminary. Um, Did you have to go to seminary to find Womanist theology is seminary where you found these quote unquote alternative theologies. Yeah. So I did have to go to seminary to learn all of this, like I mentioned. And and I don't think that that's how it should be. And one of the things that I love about myself and my fellow womanist theologians and my fem- my fellow liberation theologians who do preach or who do pastor is that they are trying more and more to bring in the teaching aspect into their congregations. But unfortunately, the traditional church doesn't always allow for it and doesn't always make space for it. And so they're having to go outside of the walls, right? So I think of people like um, Reverend Dr. Melva Sampson, who has Pink Robe Chronicles on Facebook. And I think of people like Reverend LaVon Briggs, who has sensual faith on Instagram and 
people like Unfit Christian, D. Daniel Thomas, who is um who created a whole um community on Facebook to help people deconstruct these things that we were given and so that we could deliberate them for ourselves and wrestle with them without having to go to seminary, without having to pay thousands of dollars to simply learn that actually the Bible was put together by like dozens of people over time in different languages and they didn't even all agree on what should go in and what should stay out right like i shouldn't have had to go to seminary to learn that that is something i should have learned in church that is something that pastors should be open to sharing with their congregants so that they can truly learn things for themselves and make informed decisions I know this is going to be a strong word and some people are going to strongly disagree but it it feels abusive to me to be in a spiritual context somewhere where you are supposed to be receiving healing and edification and support and where you are trusting a spiritual leader to guide you through your own formation journey, it, it is irresponsible at best and it's abusive at worst because how then am I supposed to trust? in this God or trust in these things when I'm not being given the whole story. What I am being given is through this very patriarchal, very toxic lens and a lens that honestly is very individualistic. It's based off of whoever is the head of that church. So if that person decides, which has happened, if that person decides, yeah, I know I learned all of that in seminary, but I'm just going to keep saying the things that we've been saying for years because it's what people want to hear, then you can't learn. And actually what we have found, what I have found in my work as an individual and what we have found through our work at Sacred and those of us who do work at the intersection of religion and reproductive justice is that many times the congregants want the information, but because their faith leader never brings it up, They don't know how to ask for it. They don't know how to talk about it. And then the faith leader is saying, well, I don't want to bring it up because I don't want to get fired. Well, I don't want, you know, the, 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 the big donations, right. To leave. I don't want people to leave the church and leave the flock. And it creates really the scarcity mindset and this fear. And so then we never grow. And for me, a spiritual path has to be about growth. Otherwise, what are we doing it for? Right. And can we also connect this then to reproductive justice? Like, how do you see this all impacting what seems like an issue that is being pushed by a religious point of view? Yeah, for sure. So, one of the first things I want to say about that and how it's connected to reproductive justice is again around like this narrative of information. What is the information that gets pushed? What is the narrative that gets promoted? And the anti-abortion movement, which is largely rooted in an evangelical white national Christian faith, one is one that came about because right-wing evangelicals lost the fight over segregation. Right? That's first and foremost. <laughs> they lost the fight over segregation. Schools got integrated. They needed a new cause. They needed something else to rally their people, to get them excited about. And abortion actually was just one of many things that they had tried on. And so by the time 
it came to fighting like this fight against abortion, Roe had already been won. They they didn't really care about abortion until, right? They were like, okay, we need a new cause. We need something new to fight for. And I think what ends up happening in those types of situations is then you things get very simplistic and they get very rigid. And so in order to make this fight worth it, there has to be a villain. There has to be this thing that we're fighting against and fighting for. Okay, so what are we fighting against? Well, we're fighting against the murdering of babies. I mean, come on. Who doesn't want to get behind that, right? Okay, well, what are we fighting for? Well, we're fighting for the lives of these children, right? These souls. It's compelling. It's very compelling storytelling. (laughs) It really is, right? They've done a great job of creating that narrative, but none of it is based in fact or reality. So in the Bible, nowhere does it talk about anything against abortion. Nowhere, not in the entire Bible. It does actually tell a story about abortion, but it's pro-abortion. And it's actually a priest performing the abortion. And so if you were to dig a little deeper, and if you were to be able to have these types of conversations in church, instead of it being relegated to educational institutions, you would have a lot more people who would be comfortable and who would understand that even if they personally disagree with abortion as a procedure, they would understand, though, that there's no faith basis for them to so strongly oppose someone else's decision-making for their own bodies, their own moral autonomy, their own agency. That is between them and God, because there actually is no universal mandate rooted in their faith that supports that. So I would say the other thing, right, to connect it all together of you have these, you have the Christian church, big C, but having this continued belief of God being male, God can only be male. Well, of course, then you're going to have a patriarchal church because what's going to get preferenced is male leadership. Why? Because now you have this belief that men are closer to God because God is male. I won't go into a whole thing, but something else we learned in seminary was how that even came about in the early church. And it was because there was this narrative being pushed around people who had uteruses and vaginas being inherently weaker than people who were born with phalluses. We don't even know if God has a body, but somehow (laughs) they're making these connections. And so you see that show up in the church continuously. I saw it in the Black church growing up, even now where you have all of these men in leadership But then you have all of these women in support roles, in service roles, keeping the church alive. But there are still denominations that don't want to ordain women because of this false idea that men are better suited to religious leadership and leadership in general. What it also does and how it connects to reproductive justice is that it devalues and infantilizes women and gender expansive people, anyone who is capable of being pregnant and saying that, oh, well, you can't make decisions for yourself. You're not as intelligent. You're not as powerful. There's no way that you could have the moral agency necessary to make such a decision. A man has to help you because that is who is closer to God. And I think that is exactly what we're seeing at a very baseline thing when we see politicians 
trying to regulate uteruses is because there is this embedded idea like back here in the amygdala from years of indoctrination that, oh, men are inherently better decision makers. They are inherently closer to God because God is male. And so therefore we have to regulate you because you don't know what you're doing. You don't know how to make decisions for your own body. And it goes back to also in this country and in our history, recent history, where we see the ways that as things became more westernized and more institutionalized, such as birthing, because birthing was a woman's issue. It was a pregnant person's issue. You had midwives who dealt with birth. But as things started to become institutionalized, you started to get the invention of education and formalization, and you have doctors, they need to be seen as the authority. And they were threatened by the wisdom in the intelligence of midwives, of birthing women and birthing people. And so now everything has to be formalized. Now everything has to be institutionalized and you have to get certificates in order to do this work that is actually very innate and natural to the people who know how to birth and who know how to care for bodies in that way. And so we see it across everything, really, <laughs> even now. Um, M. Adams, uh, who's the former executive director of Freedom Inc., used to talk about the, the trinity of patriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism. And it has really just infiltrated everything. And we could have this whole chicken and egg conversation of like, what came first, patriarchy or white supremacy? And I think patriarchy really is where a lot of this begins. This idea of wanting to be sovereign and, and so wanting to really establish dominance in that way. I'm trying to keep up all these <laughs> topics. They're so interrelated and trying to think back through time how someone, you know, a thousand years ago might have thought and how that's influencing us today is kind of blowing my mind. So I want to hear more about the incredible work at the intersections of queer femme identity, sexuality, spirituality, and decolonization that you're doing and how these intersections inform the way that you approach your work in reproductive justice. It's a very important <laughs> topic. So what I do want to name that I feel like like a lot of things starting to become sort of a buzzword. So I want to uplift and uphold that indigenous communities, both to the U.S. and outside of the U.S., when they talk about decolonization, it is truly talking about a return. In, in African principles, we talk about the idea of Sankofa, which means to go back and get it. And it is a return to original principles, which a lot of times, if you look at most indigenous communities the world over, share very, very, very similar principles, which is stewarding of the earth, which is a reverence for female identified folks, a reverence for birthing, a reverence for the female form in that way. Also a reverence for gender expansive people, whether you refer to them as two-spirit people or genderqueer people or trans folks, um, but a reverence for queer folks and trans folks. 
which is also a return to collectivism and communal living, a return to spiritualities that are rooted in the earth, but also that are rooted in having a personal relationship with divine and spirit and having a relationship with divine and spirit that is one of wholeness, not one of shame, not one of guilt, not one of punishment, but one of wholeness. And I feel like these are core principles across the board when you look at global indigenous communities. And so when we're talking about decolonization, those are the things that I, I, wanna, I feel like we're talking about and trying to lift up. The way that it applies for me in this context, when we're talking about queer identity and sexuality and spirituality and reproductive justice, is that if we were to move with an ethic of decolonization, first and foremost, there would not be this policing of bodies. Because bodies are inherently good. Bodies come from creator, come from spirit. There is no shame in your body. You are inherently whole from the beginning. You are made in the image of the creator. And so therefore you are good, period. There is nothing to fix or change. There is nothing bad about you. And so your decisions can't be bad. And what you want to do to your body can't be bad because you have received that ordination from creator, creator self. Most indigenous religions, there is no separation between sexuality and spirituality. You can't actually talk about them separately. In African cosmology, for the most part, like you have one word for the same thing. You actually, you, you literally can't separate them. And so it is only in the Western world that they become separate, that they become these different entities. And so decolonization for me is super important to the work that I'm doing because it is helping people to ground in the knowing and in the wisdom that they already have. They just need to remember it. And whether that's ancestral remembering or that's body remembering, whatever that might be, but it is a remembering that, oh, right, I am whole. I'm already whole. Separation is mental. The separation comes from these systems of oppression that have convinced us that there is a separation, but the separation actually never existed. So it is a remembering of our wholeness and that we have the authority to live into our divine beings. So these oppressive religious or cultural systems have created an illusion of separation or schism between spirituality and sexuality. Can you talk more about advocating for reproductive autonomy when there are those who would have us think pleasure is shameful or separate from spirituality? So I don't see them as separate. And so I think if you're advocating for reproductive autonomy, you're, you are, re, are advocating for pleasure because they're all connected. Because if we look at even the way that these laws have gone, attacks on reproductive autonomy, attacks on gender autonomy and gender identity. We've had attacks against sex workers. We've had attacks on sexual education and, and sexual health, right? So it's, it's, it's all a part of the same agenda that they have to make it so that we have no control over our own beings. 
So whether that's reproductive control, whether that's sexual control, whether that's gender control, it's all interconnected. And that is, I think, the thing about white Christian nationalism is that it literally is saying, if you do not fit this standard, then you do not belong. And not only do you not belong, now we're going to implement laws to eradicate you. It, mm. it, is, it is a form of eradication to say anything that is outside of this quote unquote norm and that doesn't conform. Well, now you have to be dealt with. It is, it is violence at, its, at the highest order. And so anyone who's advocating for anything around bodily autonomy is advocating for pleasure. Anyone who is advocating for workers' rights, anyone who is advocating for equity in pay, anyone who is advocating for days off because they literally don't get any days off. They don't get time off. That is a pleasure issue. You can't rest. Your body can't rest. Your body can't restore itself, rejuvenate itself. That to me is a bird of pleasure. Um, it is a part of reproductive autonomy for sure, because think of so many things that our bodies then can't do without getting proper rest and proper care. And so I purposefully go by Reverend Pleasure. I purposefully name, renamed my consulting company Pleasure Principles Consulting because of the mere fact that people think it's frivolous, because of the mere fact that people think, oh, there's, there, there are bigger things for us to be talking about or advocating for. And it's like, actually, no, because they don't want you to have pleasure. If they don't want you to make decisions about your, what to do with your reproductive choices, they definitely don't want you to have pleasure. And so that, to me, is a form of, of how you resist is by centering your pleasure by centering what it is to show up in your fullness and in your wholeness every day, regardless of what the powers that be want you to do. Yeah, thank you for explaining that so well. And I think this conversation about decolonization is so important. And I wanted to ask and sort of an extensive question here, which is when we see white churches focusing on racial reconciliation, but ignoring reproductive justice. Maybe you can speak to that. Like, why is it so important for racial, any discussions about racial reconciliation to also include reproductive justice? Yes. Do we have another hour? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there is a book that I love and that I highly recommend for everyone to, to read, to help understand why talking about this as a racial justice issue is so important. And it's called All the Women Are White, All the Blacks Are Men, But Some of Us Are Brave. And it's a feminist anthology in Black women's studies that talks about the very issues that Black women and women of color in particular face because feminist movement was majority white and did not want to talk about race. Racial justice movement was majority male and did not want to talk about women's issues. And so it was like, okay, well, we will create our own things <laughs> so that we can talk about this unique intersection of what it means to be Black and or of color and female and or LGBTQ and or all of these things, right? And like, when you look at Black feminisms and when you look at things like reproductive justice, 
because it was created by people who are multiply oppressed, they are then able to become more and more and more expansive to center the most marginalized. So within reproductive justice, even though it was started by mostly cisgender Black women who were talking about things like the right to bodily autonomy, the right to parent, the right to birth children, to not birth children, to raise your children in healthy and safe environments, we understand within reproductive justice that when we center Black trans women, that we will also be centered, that we will also get justice. And so... Uh, The reproductive justice framework is an inherently racial justice framework because it understands that none of us are free until all of us are free. And the way that all of us get free is by continuously putting the persons who are most oppressed at the center of our work, at the center of the fight for justice. Um, Because when that person gets justice, then everybody else gets justice. And so when we look at the way in which white supremacy shows up, it's very insidious. And one of the habits of white supremacy is individualism. There's this idea that like, oh, well, me first. Well, my needs aren't being met, so why should I worry about yours? As opposed to in reproductive justice and as in womanism, right, womanist theology, it's collectivism, it's communalism, it's all of us or none. And, And that is again, an inherently decolonized way of approaching things. So moving on to uh, trauma work, because I know that's a lot of what you do actually is to deal with trauma. In Alabama, uh, we had the second highest number of reported child sexual abuse victims in the nation. Mm -hmm. Um, According to the most recent Alabama Department of Health data, 79% of rape crimes were committed by someone the victim knew. And 23% of the victims are between the ages of 13 and 16. In addition to that, Alabama also has zero exceptions for abortions in the case of rape and abuse. So with all that being said, can you talk about this dissonance that we're seeing between purity culture coming out of evangelical Christianity and abuse and the religious rights refusal to acknowledge and support victims? Wow. Uh, (laughs) This is a very, very heavy question. Um, So many layers. I have to take a moment, though, for those statistics, because that, yeah, that is staggering. This could be a whole season, just by the way. Um, There is a direct connection between purity culture and the lack of exceptions when it comes to abortion laws and abortion restrictions and bans, and the fact that so many of these laws are being created by people who claim to be evangelical Christians. So when we talk about purity culture, right, just real quick, what are we talking about? We are talking about this um, indoctrination that women are meant to be chaste and virginal, and that we shouldn't think about sex, talk about sex, Um, we shouldn't even really know the word sex for the majority of our lives. But then somehow when we marry that man that we're supposed to marry, then all of a sudden we're supposed to know exactly what to do and how to have sex and make all the babies and do all the things, right? 
like the switch is just supposed to go off after having never been taught anything except if you chew a piece of gum, it's not going to go back to being unchewed or whatever version you got <laughs> in your in your purity culture, right? If you crumple a flower, not, there's nothing you can do to make it go back to its original form. All of these shame-based fear-mongering messages that were targeted at girls, um, not, not women, girls. We were girls when we got these messages. And so... What purity culture also taught us, though, was that we were solely responsible if something sexual happened. It was never the boy's fault, the man's fault, the whoever's fault. It was always on us. And so what we see is this through line then that from what we were talking about earlier, patriarchal God, male God, male leadership, Men can do no wrong. Men are infallible because God is infallible. Well, then, of course, women are to blame because Eve and blah, blah, blah. And so when you think about what's happening now with these lack of exceptions, it's, again, because women and pregnant capable people are seen as less than. We can't make our own decisions, so we're infantilized. But also, we are solely responsible for any sexual immorality that occurs also because we are so fallible and we're so imperfect. And so when it comes to rape survivors and sexual assault victims, what we see a lot of times is that purity culture through line that comes in to our legal system. It's actually one of the few crimes where the burden of proof is on the victim. Why were you wearing that? And why did you go there? And why did you talk like that or dress like that or or what have you? And so, of course, no, you're not going to have any exceptions in these laws that are being written because they believe the victim is to blame in the first place. They don't see them as victims. They see, well, there must have been something that you did to bring this upon yourself. Therefore, this is your consequence. This is your punishment. It's all very punitive, which is also just to the earlier question, also a hallmark of white supremacy. It's very punitive. There's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no restoration in these approaches. It's all, oh, well, if this, then that, which again is the values-based framework of white Christian nationalism, the very rigid black and white, if you don't fit into this, you must be punished. You must be othered. And there is, there is no room for complexity. There is no room for reconciliation or true healing to take place. And so I know we're talking about trauma, but the work that I really do is, yes, it deals with trauma, but the work that I really do is around healing, is how do we reconcile and how do we heal so that we can get justice? For me, healing and justice go hand in hand. There actually cannot be any healing without justice. And so how is it that we help folks to unlearn all of these harmful things so that they can be restored, so that they can reclaim their own wholeness, so that they can understand that they are worthy of justice so that they can heal? Oh, that reminds me of a Cornell West quote, that justice is what love looks like in public. And I wish more faith leaders would or could be more publicly vocal 
in challenging the false narrative that if you're a person of faith, then you can't be pro-choice. I, I love a statement that you made on a panel discussion on reproductive justice after Dobbs for the New York Historical Society, where you talk about pastoral responsibility. You said, quote, no matter what faith tradition you are, it's literally a part of the human experience. So how can you not be equipped to provide support and care to your congregations in that regard? Um, can you talk about the faith leader's role in providing someone who's pregnant with the support they need? Yeah. So I personally don't know how anyone calls themselves a pastor and then shames people for very natural decision-making processes. Let's not even talk about medical abortions for a moment. Let's talk about spontaneous abortions, which colloquially are known as miscarriages. Up to 20% of pregnancies end in miscarriage. That is a staggering number. There's a range, but it goes up to 20%. For many of us who are Christian faith leaders, we go through three years of seminary and there's barely any education on how to counsel somebody who has had a miscarriage. Part of my final project for my certificate in sexuality and religion is how I created a course called Reproductive Justice Informed Pastoral Care because it was mind-boggling to me that I had made it that far in my seminary career and no one had instructed us on how to care for somebody in their decision-making process. Like I said on that panel, sex is a part of the human experience. Getting pregnant is a part of the human experience. Losing a child is a part of the human experience. Deciding if children are for you is a part of the human experience. These are all also deeply spiritual experiences for many people. For many people, it's not. But for many people, those are spiritual questions, not just, you know, life questions. And so it is irresponsible of faith leaders to not be prepared to meet people in the midst of that questioning without you forcing your own opinion on them. Because at the end of the day, that's what it is. It's your opinion. It's not fact, not rooted in anything biblical. And so it's your opinion. It's your belief. It's what you would do. And that's not what people need from you. What they need is a responsible spiritual leader, an ethically responsible spiritual leader who can journey with them without judgment, who can guide them, who can hold space for them in the complexity of their own emotions and what's going on, and who's going to tell them the truth and not fearmonger them or shame them. And so part of the work that we're doing at Sacred with congregations and with faith communities is equipping them with the education and the tools that many of us did not get in seminary or that many of us don't get unless they go to seminary um, so that folks can know for themselves what the truth is and so they can make informed decisions and so that they can figure out how to be with other people and how to advocate because the majority of people of faith believe that when it comes to abortion, people should get to make their own decisions. The majority of people of faith 
that, and that is across faith traditions, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, Protestant, like across faith traditions believe that people should get to make their own decisions when it comes to abortion. And so therefore faith leaders need to be able to meet people where they are. And the majority of the people that faith leaders are guiding are the place that they are in is that this should be a personal decision. And I want to, what I want is for my pastor to be able to talk to me like a person and not preach at me, but teach me, talk to me about how it is I navigate this from my own faith lens. Yeah, and that's a great segue into our final question, which is, you know, there's a lot of people out there, I think, that that could easily go shopping around for another church, something that's more progressive and in line with what you're talking about. But then there's probably a lot of people out there that feel very much connected to the community that they're already a part of. So if that's the case, how do people who are in these churches where their pastors aren't speaking up or either have a clear anti-choice stance, how do they have that conversation and speak up and even possibly make change? I say it starts with telling your own story. So my co-director, Reverend Angela Tyler Williams, always says that everyone has a faith story, whether you are a person of faith or not. And everyone has a reproductive story, whether you are planning on having children or have children or not. All of us have been impacted in some way, shape, or form by reproductive justice issues because reproductive justice issues are life issues. And so I would say if you are in a faith community where you wish your faith leader would have these conversations, go to them, share share your story, whatever that story is, because this is a deeply personal issue, right? That's the other thing that I think a lot of folks miss and forget because these things are being legislated, which they should not be, is that this is a deeply personal issue. And when we meet each other human to human, and say, I just want to talk to you. Can I, can I share my story with you? That's when people shift because it's really hard to yell in the face of somebody whose child you've christened or whose graduation you've been to or whose mom you gave their last rights to when they come to you and share their story regardless of what your stance is. So even if you might be afraid because your faith leader has anti-abortion stances, I would still encourage you to try, especially if you know that it's important, especially if you know somebody in the congregation who needs support. Um, Because nine times out of 10, there's somebody sitting in the pew, sitting in shame. And they don't need to be And the one thing that I know for certain that I always say is that shame does three things. It separates you from yourself, from your community, and your divinity. And it stops you from actually being able to live into your wholeness. And so you sharing your story could save somebody from being isolated in shame and reconnect them to the divinity and the truth of who they are. Mm, I love the imagery of reconnecting with ourselves and with each other and saving each other from shame by sharing our stories. 
Uh, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Reframing trauma as healing and and finding wholeness is something that's giving me hope. And we like to end our episodes on that note. Can you share with us what gives you hope and how can listeners support your work? Yeah, what gives me hope? So much gives me hope, actually. I'm a very oh, hopeful good. person, <laughs> which I know sometimes people are like, what? It's like, yeah, I still have a lot of hope. I have hope in humanity and who we are as people. I would say I think a big thing that's giving me hope right now is the joy that a lot of the congregations that we're working with at Sacred have as they go through our curriculum and a lot of the aha moments that they're having, right? Some of the moments that y'all had today on the podcast, like they're having as they're going through the curriculum. So like, I was never taught this or I thought it had to be this way or this is how I was raised. And I love when people get to a place in their faith formation and in their spiritual formation where they're like, oh, I get to name this for myself. I, I get to say what this looks like. That gives me hope because it means that more and more people are decolonizing their faith and coming into coming to a place where they can then move into the future from a justice-centered place and from a healing-centered place. In terms of how you can stay connected with sacred, we are at sacred underscore repro on Instagram. We are also on Facebook. Spiritual Alliance of Communities for Reproductive Dignity. We don't play on Elon Musk's internet, so <laughs> not on there. Um, our website is sacreddignity.org. So feel free to go on there. Um, you can donate to us so that we can continue doing this work, being with faith communities as they unlearn uh, some of these things and as they work to learn more about reproductive justice and advocate for reproductive justice. And also, if you are a faith community that would like to go through the sacred curriculum and be trained in the sacred curriculum, you can learn more there and you can reach out to us through the website to learn about our upcoming trainings. We have three, one in October, one in November, and one in December, which uh, dates to be determined and they will all be virtual. So yeah, we invite y'all to join us. That was awesome. I'll, we'll definitely capture notes and links in, in the show notes. So people yes. can can get looped in. Yes. And how can people find your Pleasure Principles consulting firm? Ah, so my website is under construction, but <laughs> you can find me on Instagram, love period Letitia, L-A-T-I-S-H-I-A. It has been a literal pleasure today to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Hi there. If you're enjoying these episodes, we encourage you to tune into the next where we talk to two local faith leaders to get their perspectives on reproductive justice and to hear how they talk to their communities about this important issue. You've been listening to the Fem South podcast and our six-part series on the impact of the Dobbs decision in Alabama produced by Fem's Act, an activist wing of Fem South. 
FM South is an intersectional book club, community, and podcast, and now activist team dedicated to demystifying the feminist movement and amplifying Southern women's voices. Our mission is to educate, integrate, and activate. If you would like to learn more about Fem South, you can follow us on Instagram. You can head over to our link tree and find all the different ways in which you can join our mission and participate. You can also ask to join our private Facebook book club group, where we talk about the books that we're reading and provide information about the events that we're sponsoring. As we continue to talk about the important impact of the overturn of Roe, it is important for us to say that we are not here to help anyone in accessing an abortion, and we do not offer any abortion services. If you would like to learn more information, though, you can head over to our link tree on Instagram. So follow us on Instagram at FemSouth. Click on our link tree where you can access our full and comprehensive list of reproductive justice information. You can also find out more information about us by going to femsouth.com. You can reach out to us at femsouth at gmail.com. And you can support us at patreon.com at femsouth or femsouth on Venmo or PayPal. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, you're listening to Fem South.